So have you ever thought about what a strange custom baptism is? I mean, just kind of set aside your religious upbringing or Christian upbringing or your understanding of this, this ordinance we call baptism. And just think about the reality of, you know, stepping down into a, a baptistry or walking down into a river or down into a lake or in some cases an ocean. You know, churches on the West Coast do baptism services all the time on the, in the ocean. And then, you know, going under the water and then coming back up above the water. And somehow that has kind of worked its way into Christianity as a custom, right? I mean, just in and of itself, it seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Am I the only one that kind of wonders about that? Well, the reality is uh, baptism, as we're going to see this morning, dates back millennia to the ancient Near East. It's an age-old ritual. And we're going to discuss what it means in different contexts because in our study through the book of Acts, we come to an occasion where Paul meets a group of people who had experienced a baptism, but come to find out they'd never been saved. They'd never understood that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had died and rose again for their sins, and He was the only hope for eternal life. Uh, In 30-plus years of ministry, I've had quite a few strange experiences when it comes to baptism. My first full-time church, I uh, was 25 years old. Wendy and I had just gotten married a year earlier, and uh, yeah, about a year and a half earlier, and uh, I had pastored part-time while I was finishing up seminary, but we took a full-time church in Illinois, and it was a good-sized church, and uh, the uh, custodian, who's long ago with the Lord now, but uh, he and I uh, loved to have just some good-natured repartee, and he would be around the church during the day, and he would we'd play jokes on each other, kind of have funny things to say to each other. Well, during my four years in that ministry, he, he always made sure whenever we had a baptism service, and it was a Baptist church, so we had a baptistry up behind the, the pulpit and, you know, traditional Baptist church. He, I never knew when I would get down into the baptistry to baptize the two or three or whatever, how many people it was, what I would find. So he did things like one time he filled it with ice, which not only did I not appreciate that, neither did those that were being baptized. Um, uh, One time he had a little toy boat that was floating around in it. Another time it was a rubber ducky that was floating around in it. And so you can imagine me walking down in there and, you know, here's either a young person or someone getting baptized and they're looking at this thing going, what is that? And I'm trying to maintain my decorum and not let on. And he's back in the back, you know, laughing. Um, another time, and this I couldn't blame this on Larry, but another time, and this is one of my first baptisms, my early baptisms before I became a pro at it, you know. Uh, I had uh, dipped too far down and the water got in my waders. And so, and the baptism service was at the beginning of the service. So I had to, back then I wore a suit and tie. That was back in the day. And so I had to preach wearing basically sopping wet clothes that my coat covered up so nobody really knew. But I was preaching the whole sermon in wet clothes because I had leaned too far over. I've done baptisms in lakes and rivers, at swimming pools and hot tubs. I've done a baptism of one person that was in a wheelchair, so we used sprinkling. Uh, Even though the biblical model was immersion, it's not the model that 
is significant, it's the meaning. And in this case, the person was unable to be immersed. And so we, with the same meaning that we're going to talk about this morning, did uh, what some people would call a sprinkling. Uh, done that a, a couple of times. But um, different Christian denominations look at baptism differently. And the reality is there's only one way to look at baptism, and that's through what does the Bible say. And yet through tradition over 2,000 years of church history, different denominations and even different Christian religions uh, have kind of come up with different, assigned different meaning to baptism than really what the Bible has to say. So I want us to, to focus on baptism, especially because we're going to be having a baptism service here at Plum Creek Chapel. And if you're interested in participating, I encourage you to reach out to me. My number's in the bulletin. It's also on uh, the website. Just to shoot me a text or email and we'll connect uh, and talk about it. But uh, turn to Acts chapter 19. That's where we left off last time, but we kind of skipped over the first seven verses. I talked about them. I think I even read them, but our main focus last time began in verse 10 or 11. I want to go back in, in light of the interest that we have seen in baptism and take a closer look at these first seven verses and talk about uh, baptism. Uh, so first of all, the background here, you know that, of course, uh, since it's been a couple of weeks, I wanted to bring us up to speed. Uh, Luke, of course, the historian, wrote uh, the book of Acts. It's really part two of his gospel. He wrote Luke and Acts, which together comprise more writing than any other writer in the New Testament. So Luke's two books are bigger than all 13 of Paul's epistles put together. Uh, so he's a significant portion of the New Testament. And, of course, his second volume, uh, the book of Acts, tells the history of the early church. It uh, kind of gives us a glimpse at that apostolic age, the transitional time as the, as the world and God's plan of the ages was shifting away from Israel being center stage to the church being God's uh, primary focus group to uh, win the world and spread the good news about him. Uh, the church uh, was still very much in its infancy. So Luke's writing in the 60s A.D., uh, at the time he's writing, the church is only 30 years old. He's writing a historical account. So as we read through it, we give you the time markers of what, what date it was when what he's describing happened. But he wrote all of it, of course, after the fact. So uh, in Acts chapter 19, uh, we find Paul in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. It's around September of 53 A.D. Uh, and... Uh, he arrives at Ephesus, and, you know, like Athens, another ancient city, uh, had, you know, Ephesus had reached its heyday and was already on the decline by the time Paul uh, had visited it. If you know much about Ephesus, one of its biggest claims to fame is the Temple of Artemis, uh, or Diana, as the Romans called it. Uh, this was a big religious center. It was four times the size of the Parthenon at Athens. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425, what you see on the left there is a modern day model, uh, scale model in Turkey. Uh, and then on the right is the ruins of the Temple of Artemis today. But it was 425 feet long by 220 feet wide and 60 feet high. As you can see in the model, and you can see one of them still standing in the ruins, there were 127 marble pillars, each of them a gift from a king in that time. And so Ephesus uh, was a hotbed of religious superstition and occult practices. We talked about this 
In the last message, when we looked at the seven sons of Sceva, and I talked about uh, never underestimate the enemy. Uh, so that's where we are still in our focal passage this morning. Uh, he had started the Ephesian church on his second missionary journey, just spent a short time there. Uh, then he comes back, and he's going to end up spending where we are in the, in the flow of thought today in Ephesus, two years and eight months in Ephesus, more than half of the four years that comprised his entire third missionary journey was spent in Ephesus. And in the immediate context here, verses 1 through 7, he comes across some of John's disciples, referring to John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, and, uh, and, an, and an interesting conversation ensues. So let's pick it up there in verse 1. We're going to read it as we go through rather than reading it up front this time. So verses 1 and 2, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So he's arriving at Ephesus where he will spend two years and eight months. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We thought so much as heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. In other words, what are you talking about? So Paul's question assumed two things that are important to understand. Number one, it assumed they were genuine Christians. Since they professed to believe John the Baptist's message, surely they understood that Jesus was, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which John had also preached. John the Baptist had also preached. And, of course, Paul's question also assumes that by now everyone who believes in Jesus receives the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he's asking them, basically, what do, you, what do you think? How is it being saved and having this Holy Spirit? Uh, maybe Paul had noticed some lack of spiritual presence in these men that made him ask the question. We don't really know. But in any event, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Their answer indicates that they weren't Christians. They weren't Christians. Uh, they said, we have not so much as heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. See, John had predicted the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, their response to Paul's question indicates they didn't know that the Lord had already given the Holy Spirit as John had predicted he would. That first happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, as we read. For the first time in all of human history, anyone who believed and was saved received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, there were people that were already saved at that point. So they got the Holy Spirit at that moment. Going forward, uh, anyone who got saved got the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. Now there was a transitional time. We read in the history, which we've already read so far in these 19 chapters. There were times like with Cornelius when the, the giving of the Holy Spirit occurred in conjunction not only with the person believing, but also with the apostles laying on of hands and things like that. It was transitional. The Bible was still being written. God was still revealing truth to mankind. But by the time you get to this encounter in Ephesus, it was universally the case that anybody who believed and was saved eternally at that moment was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, in fact, it's from Ephesus where we are uh, right now in our study that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's in 1 Corinthians that we read about in chapter 12 how we are sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of faith. So uh, when Paul discovered that these John the Baptist disciples uh, had not received the Holy Spirit, 
He then asks the next question, which kind of gives us a glimpse at to what baptism is all about, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But he says, oh, then into what then were you baptized? In other words, what baptism have you experienced? What did you identify with in your baptism? See, as we're going to see in a second, baptism always identifies you with something. That's the purpose of baptism. It predates Christianity by a couple thousand years. It's used in a variety of religions, both pagan and otherwise, to signify identification with something. And we see, and that was widely known in the first century. And so we see here Paul saying, oh, okay, well then, essentially, what baptism did you experience? Because it certainly wasn't Christian water baptism, uh, because you've not been saved. And they, of course, answered, into John's baptism. And the prepositions there are important. By being baptized, they were identifying with John the Baptist's message. So let's define baptism. As I said, baptism always identifies the participant with some religion, ideology, person, or movement. When you see baptism in Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, by the way, baptism is used in the Old Testament, you should always ask, what is this baptism identifying the participant with? Not all baptisms have the same purpose, the same identification. Baptism was a common cultural custom in the first century. So a survey of scripture indicates several types of baptism. First of all, you have pagan baptism, which would identify someone with a false religion. They were you know, followers of Baal or Moloch or some other ancient Near Eastern false god. They might experience baptism to say, hey, I identify with this group. I identify with this belief system. I identify with this, key, this false god. Right? Pagan baptism. Then the Bible in the Old Testament speaks of Moses' baptism, which, like John the Baptist's baptism, identified its participants with Moses' message. Didn't mean you were born again or saved eternally. Uh, it just meant that you were identifying publicly with Moses' message. And then we had Jewish proselyte baptism, which identifies the participants with Judaism. So a Gentile got saved and then wanted to participate in Judaism, they would receive proselyte baptism, identifying them with the customs and rituals and traditions of Judaism in the Old Testament. And then, uh, coming to the New Testament, we see John the Baptist's baptism, which identified people with John's message. What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, as we just read, just because someone agreed with John the Baptist's message and was baptized to identify with that message does not mean that person was personally saved. Nobody gets saved because they believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You get saved by believing that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, paid your personal sin debt, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers to you freely the gift of eternal life. That only Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Eternal, personal eternal salvation has nothing to do with the reality of the coming messianic kingdom. That is certainly true, 
And it's true that with the coming of Messiah at his first advent, the kingdom was at hand. But as we know, both from the Old Testament prophets and from the historical reality, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. They crowned him with thorns instead of crowning him uh, with a king's crown. He had to suffer before he could reign. The cross had to come before the crown. And so, uh, but many people early on, especially lined up to say, okay, the, the long-awaited Messiah is here. We agree with you, John. We're excited about it. By the way, not unlike today, people often jump on bandwagons and, and get baptized, you know, to, because they're excited about a message. And baptism, whatever, you know, kind it is, and we're going to get to two more here in a second, but baptism doesn't save you. What saves you is faith. And so you can be dunked a thousand times and, you know, still go to hell if you've never personally trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And these disciples of John had not done that, as evidenced by the fact that they had not received the permanent gift of the Holy Spirit, who is, seals us until the day of redemption, until we get to heaven. So, very important to know this, and I'm camping out here a little bit longer, because a lot of people, when they're building their doctrine of salvation, of how you get to heaven, mistakenly point to passages in the Gospels, such as these passages that say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they say, that's what you have to do to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible universally teaches you're saved by faith. Repentance just means a change of mind, and John the Baptist in the context was calling those people that were following him to change their mind and recognize that the kingdom had finally come kingdom is at hand. Some of them may have also placed their faith in the king who had come as the only one who could save them and forgive their sin and give them eternal life. But it wasn't their agreement with John's message that saved them. Does that make sense? So John the Baptist's baptism is another type of baptism, and it identified people with John's message. Then you have Holy Spirit's baptism. And boy, people are all over the map on this, but I mean, a plain, normal, literal understanding of Scripture, it's pretty clear. Uh, Holy Spirit's baptism occurs simultaneously with faith, simultaneously with faith, the moment a person places his or her faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save them, in that instant, the Holy Spirit spiritually identifies that person with Christ. And that's why Paul repeatedly talks about us being in Christ, if you know the Lord. You're a believer. You're in Christ. You're identified with Christ. You're a child of God, John 1, 12, or 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. That happens spiritually through Holy Spirit baptism. So that, that's a classic example where we're not even dealing with water in this case but we're dealing with identification. And so the Bible calls it a baptism because it's an identification. But at the moment of conversion, every believer is identified with Christ. Now this is important because a, a lot of people think that Christian water baptism uh, is what identifies us with Christ. And that is not the case. 
Christian water baptism does not identify you with Christ. In fact, you better already be identified with Christ before you experience Christian water baptism or it's meaningless, right? Salvation, eternal salvation comes before Christian water baptism because Christian baptism, like all baptisms, identifies you with something. And what does Christian baptism do? It identifies us with other believers. It says, I've been saved. I've already trusted Christ. I'm one of you now. See? It identifies you with Christians, with Christianity, with the message of the Bible. It does not save you. You don't have to experience Christian water baptism to get to heaven. But as we saw earlier in Acts chapter 10, it is commanded. It is something that believers should do, just like we should do a lot of other things. We should pray. We should read the Bible. We should talk about Christ with others. We should be involved in a local Bible-believing church. We should support the local church. We should use our gifts to encourage other believers. There are a lot of things that we should do, but a failure to do so does not somehow negate what Jesus gave you when you trusted Him and Him alone for salvation. You're saved eternally, regardless of whether you are faithfully doing the things that believers should do. But Christian water baptism does not identify us with Christ. That already happened, and the Holy Spirit's baptism does that. Now, a lot of people misunderstand the teaching about the Holy Spirit baptism, and they have a misunderstanding of the, the, the transitional nature of the book of Acts and how that relates to Paul's teaching about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians and Romans and 1 Peter. And they've come up with a, I believe, a misunderstanding of Holy Spirit baptism because they're getting their doctrine from Acts, which is a historical narrative that doesn't teach doctrine directly. It illustrates doctrine. It's a historical book. Uh, and, and so they say that you get saved by faith and then down the road, when you get spiritual enough, you have a second blessing, and the Holy Spirit baptizes you at that time, and it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. Anybody familiar with that type of teaching? So, you know, I respect those people. I've spoken in churches that, uh, at conferences and in churches that uh, people believe that, but I have an honest disagreement with them about that. That's not what the New Testament teaches. It's plain that the New Testament teaches, and you can prove it when you go to 1 Corinthians, that baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of faith. And that's precisely why Paul, when coming across these 12 disciples of John, was questioning whether they were saved. Because while they had experienced a baptism, they had never been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They'd never received an identification with Christ that comes from faith. So we go back to the text. He says, uh, so they said, well, into John's baptism. Uh, they had undergone John's water baptism. And that means they had identified with his message. But they had never uh, been saved. In fact, uh, you know, shortly after this interaction, as I mentioned, Paul is going to write 1 Corinthians and then later Romans all on this third, and 2 Corinthians, by the way, but all on this third missionary journey. And he makes it very clear in those books that the sealing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which all are part of the same thing, happens at conversion. So Paul responds then in verse 4, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. 
See, John the Baptist wasn't evangelizing people to get them saved. He was announcing the arrival of the king and saying that this king is also the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And if you read John the Apostle's gospel, the gospel of belief, he paints that picture from beginning to end that it's only by faith that you can be saved. John wasn't saying, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And then if you've done that, come down into the Sea of Galilee and I'll baptize you as an outward expression of an inward experience and letting the body of Christ know that you're now part of them. Uh, he wasn't saying that at all. He, his message, as Paul says here, was a baptism of repentance. Change your mind. Whatever you were thinking about the kingdom, whatever you thought about its delay, about its uh, presence in the Roman Empire, about its merging Roman and Judaistic culture, forget all that. It's time to change your mind. The king has come. And as Paul said, he also said, believe on the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. But the point is, these disciples had not done that. They had not done that. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> so in other words, again, this is a historical narrative, so it's not telling us minute by minute, second by second, everything that happened over a 30-year span. It's just relaying to us the historical account. We know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that clearly they must have believed the Lord if they then were baptized. And then, uh, uh, he, so he baptizes them uh, in water, baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is the only explicit reference in the New Testament to someone being re-baptized. Right? They were baptized once by John the Baptist for one thing. They got saved, then they were baptized again in Christian baptism, water baptism. Now, this is important because many people in our culture today are baptized as an infant. Uh, it might surprise you to know that I was baptized as an infant. So hopefully the elders won't like call a meeting and boot me out because I might hasten to add I was also baptized after I placed my faith in Christ as a young man. Uh, but my parent, my grandfather, was a Bible Presbyterian preacher and they believed in baptism not as a salvific event but as a means of dedicating a child and his family to the Lord. And so I did that in deference to my grandfather. He understood I wasn't saving me or somehow covering me in grace. It was a, just a cultural thing and that small uh, exclusive form of Bible Presby Presbyterian uh, group. Uh, so I was baptized that way as an infant and guess what? After I you know, got old enough to hear and know and understand the gospel and believe it, I was then baptized again as an outward expression of an inward experience letting people know I've trusted Christ and I'm now identifying with everyone else who's trusted Christ. I'm identifying with other Christians. Now, uh, I might add that, so again, so many offshoots and deviations and false teachings have arisen over 2,000 years about everything, you know. Um, but uh, when it comes to a baptism, there are those uh, who teach that, you know, you have to be baptized to be saved. We, we've talked about that. There are those who make a big deal about the mode of baptism, uh, legalistically. Uh, the Bible doesn't say you have to have the same mode. Uh, it makes sense for the reasons that we're going to talk about in a second 
because Paul later on uses water baptism as an illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I don't know why you wouldn't do it that way, but certainly it's, it's more about what it represents than the mode, just like the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance that we're told to continue to do until the Lord comes. Uh, you, you could do that with pizza and Pepsi, and it, as long as it has the same meaning, it doesn't really matter. There's nothing sacrosanct about unleavened bread and wine. And by the way, most churches don't use real wine the way they did in the upper room, so we need to just be honest about it. It's about what it represents, and the same thing is true uh, about, uh, about baptism. But uh, another false teaching about baptism, and it relates to the identification, is some groups correctly understand that water baptism of a believer comes after conversion, after you've placed your faith in Christ, but they, they make the identification so narrow that they teach you have to be baptized in that local church in order to become part of that local church. And that's called um, the doctrine of alien immersion. Like if you've been saved and baptized and you were to go try to join another church, they would say, great, you got to get baptized again in our church or you can't join. And that's not biblical. That confuses the doctrine of the universal church, all believers throughout the world, who in this present age you've trusted Christ, with the local church, which is a select group of believers that come together weekly for the assembly to do the work of the Lord, like Plum Creek Chapel. So we here at Plum Creek Chapel certainly don't require people to be baptized in our church if you've trusted Christ and been baptized, you're you know, welcome to become a member. And again, everybody's a part of the family, whether you're a member or not. Uh, we're going to have a membership luncheon, as I mentioned, uh, coming up on November 13th, where we're going to tell you a little bit more about our church. But you know, if you're a member officially, then you can serve in certain positions. You can be on the board. You can vote on certain issues. Uh, but everybody, whether you're a member or not, is part of the family. And we want you to make sure you feel that way. You're welcome to serve and help and be involved and make suggestions and all of that. Um, but certainly, if you want to be a member, we're not going to require you, if you've already been baptized, to be baptized again here at Plum Creek Chapel. We don't believe that's what the Bible uh, teaches. But here we have an example of someone who was baptized once, and then after they got saved, they were baptized again. And so, uh, just as with the new converts in Samaria, these Ephesian uh, disciples received the Holy Spirit as Paul laid his hands on them. Again, this was still transitional. Uh, the laying on of hands was sort of symbolic of apostolic authority, uh, but we know doctrinally, as Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians, a short time later, that you, you get the Holy Spirit at the same time as you believe. In other words, today, you don't need ap an apostle after you've gotten, been baptized to come and lay their hands on you and get the Holy Spirit. You know? It just doesn't happen that way. And there were about 12 in all, uh, Paul says. So with that background... And having looked at the text, I want to just close out with a little more detail about the significance of water baptism. Water baptism, Christian baptism, is an especially poignant illustration of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our sins. It represents our spiritual cleansing from sin to new life in Christ. Now, mind you, I'm not suggesting that water baptism actually cleanses you, but it represents, it symbolizes, it's a good mental picture of that cleansing. So when you come up out of the baptistry, you're, you're announcing, hey, I've trusted Christ, and by faith in Him, I am now clean. Again, it's not the baptism that cleanses you, but it's a picture. And we see that in Romans chapter 6, but... 
to, to clarify, let me just give you a couple of points about the significance of Christian water baptism after you've placed your faith in Christ. First of all, it pictures the gospel. I'll come back to that in a second. As I said, it identifies us with a group of believers. It says, hey, I'm one of you. I've been saved like you. And I'm not ashamed to tell you. Um, the illustration I use with, with kids when I'm uh, counseling them about baptism after they've trusted Christ is uh, one of uh, you know, a referee in, in a football game, right? Uh, when you see a referee go like this, by the way, for you Broncos fans, that means touchdown. Sorry. Uh, what does that mean? Touchdown, right? Now, does that, when a referee goes like that, does that guarantee that you're going to get six points? Not anymore, first of all, because of replay officials, but also because sometimes he might be wrong. Some, you know, even before they had replay, sometimes one official would do this, the other would wave him off and say, no, 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 I had a better angle. The ball never crossed the goal line. When do you get the six points? When the ball crosses the goal line. When do you receive eternal salvation? When you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's settled. To, to stretch the analogy even further, suppose the team scores a touchdown and the referee who's watching and about to signal touchdown trips and falls before he can even signal it and, and in fact never does signal. Does that mean they don't get the points? No, of course not. They get six points because you made a touchdown. The symbol is just a declaration of what happened on the field. And water baptism is just a declaration outwardly of something that's already happened inwardly. And again, even if you never experience water baptism, it has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. But it is, according to Scripture, an important first step. It's a way to unashamedly say, hey, I'm one of you. I've trusted Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm part of the community. Uh, and it's something we should do. So it identifies you with believers. Uh, it signifies that you've been saved by faith. It invites others to trust Christ as well. Baptisms, like funeral services, are great opportunities to share the gospel. And most importantly, it fulfills the command to make disciples. The Great Commission includes baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So going back to Romans 6, as I've mentioned a couple of times, Paul makes this analogy. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so he's using baptism here in the sense of identification. You've been identified with Christ by faith. But the actual cultural rite of Christian baptism is uniquely suited for what we believe it symbolizes and what the Bible teaches it symbolizes uh, over and against all the other pagan forms of baptism because it pictures what Christ did on our behalf. He came from heaven to earth just as a person who's been saved will walk down into the waters, whether that's a lake, a river, or a baptistry. Then having come to earth, he died and was buried, just as we're buried beneath the waters of the river or lake or baptism, baptistry. And then he rose again the third day. Now, we don't require people to be held under the water for three days when we baptize them, but it's still a symbol of the, the incarnation the death and burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so when I baptize people, I always will say, buried uh, with him by baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. Not imparting any kind of spiritual life to that person, but it's just saying, look, you've now made a public declaration. 
And the new life that's already happened when you were born again at the moment of faith should now live itself out in outwardly as a new, new, new behavior, new believer. Uh, I like to, when I talk about baptism as a cleanse, as an illustration of cleansing, to bring in what Jesus said in the upper room. Remember this? Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. You'll never wash my feet. And uh, uh, then uh, Jesus says, uh, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Then he says, well, then in that case, give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, well, if you've already been bathed, you really only need a foot washing because you're completely clean. Remember that? And then he comments, but not all of you are clean because he was talking about Judas, as he goes on to say in verse 11. So here's an example where eternal salvation is compared to a cleansing. If your sins have been forgiven positionally by faith in Christ, you're clean. Doesn't mean we always act clean, because we don't always live out the new life in Christ. Sometimes we live like the old man, not the new man. And when we do, we're acting inconsistent with who we are in Christ. We're not acting like a child of the king. We're acting like a child of the devil. That's what 1 John 3 is all about. But we're positionally once for all clean, and we ought to act like we're clean. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, as a believer, there's no sin you can commit that's going to undo what Christ did for you. It may bring serious discipline, including swift physical death, as 1 John 5 goes on to talk about. Uh, whom the Father loves, He chastens, Hebrews chapter 12. But nothing we can do can make us positionally unclean again, because we've been cleansed. We've been cleansed by faith alone in Christ alone, and baptism symbolizes that. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what being born again is all about, as Jesus told Nicodemus. You know, you need to be cleansed. You need to be reborn. You need a new life because your old life is sold under sin, dead in trespasses and sins. In Galatians, Paul says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. It's not about what you do or what laws you follow or what rituals you follow. It's about who you know. So the question is, have you been cleansed? If you've been saved by faith, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, then you're cleansed. But an important next step is to give an outward expression of that inward experience that you've already had. And that's what's called baptism. So we see throughout the history of the early church, every time people got saved, they followed it up with baptism. Not because they had to or it was mandatory or they would not go to heaven but because it was a natural outgrowth of, hey, I'm a new person. I've, I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm part of the family of God, and I want you to know about it. And so in Acts 2, those who gladly received his word were baptized. The Philippian jailer we read about in Acts 16, uh, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And what happened? Immediately he and all his family were baptized, having believed the gospel. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians, interestingly enough, again, which he wrote from Ephesus, which is where we are in our journey, that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, if baptism was, in fact, required to get into heaven, then the only conclusion we can draw is that 
Paul's entire ministry was preaching an incomplete message. If he wasn't to be, if he wasn't sent by God to to baptize, then you know, if you have to be baptized to be saved, Paul, you couldn't be saved from Paul's message. And as I mentioned earlier in Acts chapter ten with Cornelius, Peter commanded them to be baptized. So I do think it's it's something that all believers should do. Uh, but more important than baptism is have you been cleansed? Now, if you've trusted Christ, you're cleansed positionally. And the next question is, then having been born again, have you been baptized in water as an outward expression? And if not, I encourage you to do that. I think uh, it's an important first step. You're only going to grow so far in your spiritual growth and your relationship with the Lord until you're willing to take that next step and say, hey, I unashamedly identify with other Christians and I'm wearing that label proudly. So if you've never been baptized, let me encourage you uh, to give it some thought and pray about it. And if you'd like to be baptized, let me know. We're going to have a baptism service sometime in November. Uh, details to come. As a closing uh, takeaway, I want to really focus on the most important aspect of baptism, and that is that it is something that comes after conversion. It is a symbolic expression of a spiritual reality, something that's already happened. And of course, that's what matters most, because if you don't get baptized, you'll still be in heaven if you know the Lord. But if you've never trusted Christ and haven't experienced that spiritual cleansing, then you know you have no guarantee you're going to be in heaven. And life is fleeting. It's a, like a vapor. Not only that, but the Lord could come back at any moment. I'm convinced it could happen at any moment. And if you haven't trusted Christ before the rapture, it's going to be tough to do so afterwards because deception is going to be even greater. It's possible, but you don't want to put it off. So to illustrate this spiritual cleansing of, of God's grace and His mercy and, and just uh, who we are in Christ and, and how we're all clean before Him if you know the Lord. I want to play a short video. This will be our takeaway. When the video is over, I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come back up for our closing song. But this is a video. It's a song that's always touched me by Mercy Me, and it's a video that has always touched me. It may not resonate with some of you, but I have a feeling it will resonate with many of you. So watch this uh, video illustrating the cleansing nature of faith alone in Christ alone. It's called Flawless. If you, Someone will grab the lights for me.